Welcome to another Christian Education National Podcast. Another episode where we bring you the audio of a presentation that has and hopefully will continue to encourage Christian educators. May it be an encouragement to you and your work for His Kingdom. How you guys doing? You guys doing good? Awesome, let's do it. And then lunchtime, amen. So I'll try to cut early. Anyone? Anyone? Okay. Uh, 60 minutes, but if there's food involved, I'll go 45 because that's 15 more minutes of food. Stoked to be with you guys. Stoked to be here. I was here, yeah, four years ago in what, Melbourne, right? Don't say Melbourne, apparently. Okay, you learn that when you, you learn that once and you never do it again. But then apparently there's like an intern, never mind. Anyways, um, stoked to be back. It feels like family. It feels like coming home at some sense, meeting the same people, being around the same people. Uh, like she said, it was crazy uh, getting here. I think 29 hours of like airports and planes. So that's a doozy. I love you guys. We're doing it for a reason. Uh, and then, yeah, one was delayed, so then we had to switch, and then I basically only landed within, like, and we only got here, like, an hour ago, basically, um, and drove kind of right here. Um, my legs are weak because we literally rode, we, like, like, they're sore because two days ago we had to run to catch the flight that we missed, so it didn't matter, so I shouldn't have ran. Um, <laughs> terrible, but literally I'm sore. Like, that was, that's, when you're, when you're a dad, that is, like, the only workout you get right there. Um, and yeah, and then, and, then, and then I even wanted to shave for you guys because I'm a little scruffy, but then I, you know, I tried to run to the hotel, shave real quick, but I, pl- I tried to plug in my electric shaver, and it like doesn't, then the wall looks very different than the thing I have in my hand. Like, what's going on here, right? Uh, so it's been a, a fun kind of little baptism into Australia, if that, if that makes sense. But I'm excited to be with you guys. What I'm going to talk about is two words, rhythm and story. Can you guys say rhythm? Rhythm, can you say story? So those are two things I would kind of call missing nutrients or key deficiencies um, in a lot of areas. And in, I think in educational spheres, I think in just the Western world in general, I think in families, and that's one note I'll say too, there's going to be some crossover here because my lane kind of lately is a ministry that I, I call family teams with uh, uh, my wife and I's mentors, they kind of, uh, we kind of do it together with them. We lean, in, we lean into it as the mentees, per se, on how a lot of things and, uh, affect the family team in the West and how we're kind of opting out of the Western family experiment and leaning more into what the Scripture says about that. But that's kind of my lane, and while I was thinking about some of these things over the last little bit, I realized there's a lot of parallels to the education space. So I'm going to kind of go back and forth, if that makes sense, but if I am in the family space, feel free to just see. I think there's always parallels. So I want us always to kind of be thinking and wearing both of those hats Um, because where I'm thinking about it here, I think it directly applies to you guys over here, and it's a lot of the same things and a lot of the same problems. And in some level, I think you guys have a really cool opportunity as educators to kind of be pseudo-families for a lot of people. Does that make sense? Because at the end of the day, I was thinking about, there's the breakdown of the family is enormous in the West, and it kind of trickles down to affecting a lot of different things. Now, that's a huge kind of ship to turn around, but I know for me, I grew up in a broken home, single mom, kind of knew my dad, but it was every other weekend, custody, that type of thing. Um, and so I was aware of him, I had a relationship with him at some level, but yeah, the home life was definitely not God's design for how he's lined up the family team to work and be on mission together and to live in his kingdom. Uh, but you know where I found some really, really safe, cool places that felt like a family? At school. And with some teachers I specifically remember as people who impacted me, who believed in me, and who gave me a greater story to live in. And I did actually go to Christian school for about eight months, but then I got kicked out and expelled, so that was awesome. Um, Yeah. Has anyone else expelled anyone? Like, we got any principals in the house? How many people have you expelled? Isn't it fun? Okay. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, I didn't start walking with the Lord until I was 19, so you can just imagine how those little middle school, high school years went. It didn't go well. Uh, But... Um, either way, there was people in those seasons that I think loved on me so well. I don't like that word, loved on. Loved me so well. Loved on is creepy. Like, well, who loves on, right? That's like, keep, take the on out of it. Uh, 
that loved me so well. And so I want to kind of talk about that. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about kind of those deficiencies. And I think how if we inject those back into our classroom, if we inject those back into our families, if we inject those back into our communities, I think a lot of really, really good things will happen of rhythms and story in a daily, weekly, yearly way, injecting these purposely in our life as practices that shape us and form us into where God wants to take us collectively as a group and also individually. But first we do that, before, first before we do that, I want to talk about the concept uh, one kind of fun thing that starts us off on a little good foot is the, the Western and Eastern view of time, or the concept of time in general. Now, there's kind of three different ways to look at the concept of time, but I think this matters because we don't realize the water we're swimming in, and even how we see time in the West, in the modernized world, actually affects why we have these key deficiencies. And so that's what I want to talk about. Now, there's three different ways to look at time. I kind of call two unhealthy or uh, incorrect, and one is more the biblical way. Now, the first one is the Eastern view of time, okay? So Eastern... I'm left-handed. I have terrible handwriting. Is anyone else left-handed where you, like, try to write and you almost, you have to be, try really hard not to smear yourself? Anyone else? Okay. Um, so I got to, like, write out here. It's really awkward. Now, the eastern view of time, it can kind of be described as, like, a circle, right? But we got to tighten this baby up. It's, like, wobbling on me. Okay. Um, now, the reason it can be described as a circle is because at some level, the eastern view of time kind of just goes around and around. It doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't paint uh, a picture of a future. It has no meaning. And so another way that you can kind of, and you see this in a lot of Eastern religions, and you certainly see this, uh, there's a really good book called Gift of the Jews, if you guys have ever read that, where he talks about the tribal Jewish culture that came out of Egypt was actually one of the first people, uh, groups, and first collective groups to actually have any linear view of time. Before them, Mesopotamian culture and some other cultures, really, you you were just kind of like a cog in the wheel. You just got kind of chewed up and spit out. I mean, to me, that's kind of reincarnation at some level, right? You just kind of go around and around and around. Life is meaningless. But what this leads to, if you actually collectively, if this is the water you're swimming in, is what I like to call passive existing, right? You're not active and you're not going anywhere. And so it can give you a certain type of identity. Now, this one I don't think we have to worry too much about because at some level, this is not us. We live in the West. Now, the Western view of time would be the exact opposite. How do you spell, right? I went to public school, well, Christian school for eight months. Okay, um, there we go. Western view of time, right? Now, this would be nothing more than a straight line, the exact opposite. The Western view of time is basically just this rocket at your back where you're just going forward. You just have to go, 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 do, 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 achieve more, buy more, do more, and it just is kind of pushing you, and you never feel like you can what? Rest, stop, cease, be. And so this actually is the opposite, right? This one leads to endless doing, now, this way of viewing time in the West has been around for hundreds and hundreds of, and hundreds of years, but it got kind of hyper and more like um, out of proportion, I would say, once we industrialized, 1700s, 1800s, 1900s, where, at the, do, you know, do you know standardized time is actually a relatively new invention? Did you know that? Like standardized, measured time. Collective global time is a very new invention. We think it was probably just around for, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, but it's about 150 years old. And it was actually forced because of the trains. Once transportation started going global and it was no longer local, then you actually had to have a standardized time because before that, time was actually relative, meaning like, you know, I'm in the States, so it'd be like, you know, Boston and New York, et cetera, which are now the same time zone, had very different time zones, right? It was just like one was 115, one was 122. is kind of whoever said it was. It was based on the sun. And what would happen is, can you imagine the confusion then if train, trains are leaving those cities, what time's leaving what? And so there was actually like deaths and collisions. And so everyone around the world said, we need to do something about this. And that's when they actually started coming up with standardized time. Now, what's interesting about this is standardized time 
what it did is the consequence of standardized time is you can keep measuring it down farther and farther and farther. You got the hours, the minutes, the seconds, then the milliseconds. And to me, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear the click of like a talk, right, the tick, 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 doesn't that sound a lot like our hearts in the West? Right? To me, I think that's, that, like, is there a reason, do you think there's another reason why we're the most anxious and depressed and absolutely burned out generation in all of human history? I think it actually goes to a lot of views with some of this stuff. Right? Because in us, because you become what you worship and you become what you live in. And if we live with a hypersensitive, hypermeasured view of time, it will create us as those beings. Where in our hearts, we literally have that watch that's tick, 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 tick. Do more, be more, produce more, achieve more. That sounds like Egypt, not Yahweh, by the way, doesn't it? There's a big, big difference. Another fun story, and I can't go on a huge tangent. There's a lady named Ruth Belleville, fascinating story. But she was one of the first people to actually buy and sell time because uh, Greenwich Observatory was what actually made the first time zone, and all the 24, hour, 24 time zones were based off that. And because they didn't have good communication then, time actually had to be bought and sold, meaning the time was standardized there at the Greenwich Observatory, and then Ruth Belleville and her family, their entire generational family business was to go to Greenwich Observatory, get the time, and then go sell it to other people. Isn't that fascinating? She would literally go get it and then take that time and sync up hers to then go sell it to businesses and other people that actually needed the time. It's really, really interesting. But Eastern view, Western view, and this is what I would call the biblical view, which at some level, if you see the illustrations, is almost a combination. But I think the biblical view can be better summed up as a spiral, that yes, God believes in the future, like we said earlier, that the Jewish people are actually one of the first people to be linear and believe that God had a future for you and God was taking you in a direction. But there seems to be a lot more of a musical cadence to how God operates in the day, in the week, in the year, in the seasons, and in our lives, does it not? That there's something about him wanting you to actually come back to the same thing, not always having to go do something new or more. He wants you to actually come back to the same thing. Here's another way to put it. To me... What the biblical view of time actually changes then is it leads not to a life of passive existing and endless doing, but a life of progressive being. I mean, it's progressive, but it's identity-based. You're shaping yourself more and more and more and more and more into the image of Jesus and who he's created you to be. And so another way to put it is we aren't stewarding a life that has a beginning, a middle, and an end, but we're actually stewarding a series of prescribed rhythms that repeat, but that we, get to re that we get to improve over time for the rest of our life. That's what forms us, in my opinion, into the image of Jesus. That's our collective goal. We're not just launching people in a trajectory. We're actually coming back to the same practices over and over and over again that will create us into the person God has for us. And this is in Scripture, by the way. You can go all the way back to Genesis, and you see this. The daily rhythm is clear as day in Genesis, is it not? And there was evening and there was morning the first day, Genesis 1-5. There was evening and there was morning the second day, Genesis 1-8. There was evening and there was morning the third day, Genesis 1-13. You can go on and on and on with those. Which, by the way, where's the day start according to God? There was evening and morning the first day. Isn't that fascinating that God actually starts the day with what? The place and the time when you should be doing nothing, sleeping, According to God's timetable, the day actually starts when you are ceasing to do anything, when you are not productive. Have you ever realized how actually not machine-like we are, even in a world that says you are machines? Optimize yourself, hack yourself, get a better tool, get a better thing, grow, try something better, try the new thing, try the new trend. Do you actually realize how inefficient we are as human bodies? Do you realize how actually, how much we smell, how gross we are? Like, like, we are not machines. Imagine if Apple tried to sell you a computer that said, yeah, here's a computer, it's $5 million, that's pretty much what it is, but it doesn't work eight hours a day. 
That's us if we're machines, right? We sleep literally a third of our entire life. Do you think it seems like God doesn't really care that much about what we do? Or that he doesn't care about sapping out of us a ton of productivity? That's what I'm trying to say. He wants us to actually be in relationship with him and live in his kingdom on mission. Weekly rhythm, you see the same thing. And on the seventh day, God finished his work with all that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. So he blessed the seventh day, and he made it holy, because on it he rested from all his work that he had done in all creation. When God rested on the seventh day, he forever blessed it and solidified it as a rhythm into the fabric of creation in the work-rest rhythm of the week, and to live in that is to thrive, and to go against that is to your own peril. There clearly is a day set apart once a week. Do you believe that? Do you live in that? Or are you trying to buck up against that system? God created a music in the universe that we can dance to. Which again, another funny thing about God's order of things. Sabbath was day seven to God. What day was it to Adam? One, right? The first full day that Adam had where he opened his eyes and he actually stepped into God's good creation. What day was it? Sabbath. A day of rest a day of delight, a day of worship, a day of being in relationship with his creator. Have you ever realized the tension there that God in Genesis gives them his, this massive vision? Go create, go cultivate, go build, go make order out of chaos, go steward the entire earth. Like that's a massive job, amen? And first day your eyes are open, guess what? Rest and worship me and chill. Why? Because if you actually start from rest, you can work really good. If you work to get to your rest, it doesn't end well. There's a big difference. To God, it's the end of the week because he works for us and then blesses us with his gift. We step in that gift, and then that can project us forward. There's a big difference. And then we see the yearly rhythms as well, not only in Genesis with the seasons, but then you can go to Leviticus 23 where God mandates all the feasts, and it's clear from the feast that he's saying, submit to the seasons. I want you to actually live in a seasonal cadence. I want a particular story to be told in particular parts of the year. Again, this is so foreign to us. Why? Because we can get a tomato 12 months out of the year. Like, do you realize how the Western experiment has actually tried to delimit us? When at some level God in holiness tries to limit us? Stepping inside of the limits according to scripture is freedom. Losing the limits according to culture is freedom. Those are opposite narratives, are they not? So we see that here's the reality. God's playing this music. And as teachers, as parents, as friends, or in a community, wherever you're at, wherever you're living, the question is, are you dancing to that music? Are you trying to listen for it? Are you trying to understand the musical cadence of God, stepping into it, and then inviting other people to dance as well? And I think when you're a teacher, or anyone who has any influence or impact, that is our job. It's to tune our ear, and then to teach other people how to tune their ear as well. Now, what I want to talk about for most of our time It's kind of some case studies. There's two groups of people who do this very, very well that I think can teach us a lot. Um, And I think I might have even mentioned them a couple years ago when I was here with you guys, but it's the Amish people and the Jewish people. Now, they have not kind of lost these limits or kind of westernized at some level because, of, of course, we're talking on a global macro scale. Then a lot of us have in the Protestant evangelical tradition. And so I think we have a lot to learn from them, and I want to kind of just talk about a couple different things with them. Now, let's talk about the, the Amish people first. Do you guys have Amish people in Australia? That's a weird question. Do you guys have Amish people out here? Maybe a little? Okay. Um, I mean, I don't know, right? I was like, what was the other, like, I don't know anything, okay? Who was, I, I, was, I was telling Simon literally a second ago when they started singing, Mary, did you know? I was like, is it Christmas time in Australia? 
do you guys do Christmas in July? I was like, this is so sick. And he's like, no, we have the same Christmas as you. I was like, I don't, how am I supposed to know? How am I supposed to know that? Right? I was like, that's legit, because then that doesn't make sense. Either. I mean, then I thought it made sense, because then it's kind of your winter, so like, I'm confused. Okay. Um, so, where was I? Okay, Amish people, now they do this really well, because again, here's the nutrients. The nutrients are rhythm and story. Because here's the thing, what I just talked about with the daily, weekly, yearly, seeing time in a cadence, understanding that God's playing a music, that's the rhythm, and then what you do is that rhythm needs to be injected with story. Story is what kind of leans into and gets shoved into rhythm, and when you have those two, it gives you a true identity, it makes you rock solid, and I also think that's where truth and teaching can be injected to in the best way too. Now, every Amish people, every Amish home uh, have three books in their home. Do you guys know the three books? Now again, there's obviously a range, but in general, does anyone know? The first one's very easy. It's the book we love as well. What is it? Bible. Okay. Does anyone know the second one? Anyone want to take some guesses? It's called, it's called Mar- Martyr's Mirror. So what you can guess that one is, is have you guys ever read like Fox's Book of Martyrs? You guys know that book? Right? So same thing, but kind of more in the Amish tradition. And so kind of telling the story of their past, telling the story of their generations. And then the last one is, does anyone know? It's a hymnal called, I think you pronounce it, like the Ospunt or something like that, I believe. Um, and it's their song tradition, right? Now to me, I love this because to me it's, you got the truth, you have the story, and then you have the soundtrack. Right? And collectively, you need them all. This is what rhythm is meant to do. This is what story is meant to do, is to be infused as holistic, embodied creatures. Now, another question. Does anyone know where you find these three books? Meaning, like, I just, like, I kind of already gave it away, but where, do they, where, where is the stack of these three books at? Literally, where are they at? And Does anyone know? The dining room table, right? In the home. These books are primarily administered where? Around a meal, as a father and a mother, administer, or a teacher, or a leader, administer the truth, administer the story, and then administer the soundtrack. Now, I think this matters for a lot of different reasons. Um, Because notice, by the way, it's not in their rooms individually for the kids to have quiet time, right? It's not collectively in a huge church setting. No, no, no. It's in this small nucleus of teams, families, classrooms, small groups, whatever it is. It's in this really small collective eye-to-eye communal type way that these are rhythmically told and talked about. And by the way, what more easier rhythm is there than eating food, right? So then you put these things in places where you have to be there anyways. Does that make sense? That they're injecting all these things around a table because you got to sit down at the table as the great, great equalizer to eat and be in community as well because you have to eat. And this is where they administer those. They're soaked in the story. So that's how they fulfill the daily rhythm as they read from those daily every single night if they're more observant. And then weekly, if you know the Amish community, they observe a pretty hard Sabbath. No work. You're not allowed to do some certain type of things. And then clearly they also observe the more yearly rhythm as highly agrarian. Right? They're highly agrarian, they work from the land, till from the land, so they have to submit to the seasons in the way God designed things to work. And so some things can't be done certain types of the year, and they find God's blessing and goodness based on what he's given to them in that season. Now, why am I telling you this? Does anyone want to guess the retention rate of an Amish kid who's raised in an Amish home for him to stay Amish? Does that make sense? Like, what's the rate that an Amish kid gets raised in an Amish home and stays Amish? Does anyone want to take a guess? Pretty high. 
95 to 97%. That's enormously high, right? I heard one pastor say the joke that, like, they actually leave so little that when they do, they give you a TV show. <laughs> you guys ever seen that, like, Amish TV? It's like, right? It's like leaving Amish or something like that. That's when you know that they, like, really seriously hold on to their own. Now let's go to the Jewish people. Does anyone want to guess the Jewish people's retention rate? Raised in a Jewish home, observe the daily, weekly, yearly rhythms and story and cadences. And what's the, what's the number? You want to guess? It's pretty much the exact same. Does anyone want to guess the evangelical number for this? And yes, this has been measured by multiple sources. Does anyone want to guess? If you go with Barna, they're, they're flexes. Barna's last one would say, does anyone know? 37% is the last one I saw. And the real recent one that Barna just did is 11% remain a resilient disciple of Christ, meaning if they actually take it very, very seriously and they can actually step into culture and not be swayed through college and young adulthood. One out of 10. Can we, can we just be humble enough to say we're doing it wrong? Can we be humble enough to say that? However we feel like we're passing off this thing, it's not going well. But you know what's also funny, by the way? I, 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 and this, this argument really bothers me. When we tend to say, like, well, yeah, because, like, culture's getting really intense, and they go off to university, and the universities and the professors hate God and atheists and all that, right? Or, like, or like oh, they were raised in a really, really conservative environment, and so they just kind of wanted to, like, leave that. Have you ever seen Amish people? <laughs> like, No. It's not because they were raised in a conservative environment in any regard. You know what I think it is? I think they were raised as industrialized Western evangelical Christians who are we like to just inject facts, 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 disembodied from an actual person, a story, and a life. Because that's what actually gives you an identity. And that's what I want to encourage you guys with today as we get into more. Can you say as a teacher that you're not just giving facts but you are giving them an embodied version of truth, which is who? Jesus. He himself is the embodied truth. The capital T truth. And that is what gives you a greater story, a greater legacy. Here's some even crazier stuff. Let's go back to the Jewish people now, uh, now that we saw some of uh, uh, the stats. It's really, really fascinating too, and I think you guys will like these ones because these ones go a little bit more with the education sphere. Now, does anyone know how many, and some of this, by the way, this little middle section, Leonard Sweet is a really great resource for this where I got some of my stats uh, and some of the stuff I've read about this if you guys want to look it up later. Does anyone want to, like, what's the rough million mark amount of Jewish people on the, in the world? Does anyone know? Just throw out a number. How many Jewish people live on earth? About 15 million, Okay. 15 million, roughly how many people do we have on this earth? 7 billion, right? I'm bad at math, but I did get a calculator. Do you guys know what percentage that is? I don't because I need to look again. 0.2%. 0.2% of the world population is Jewish. So can we just say statistically that's insignificant, right? They're not insignificant, but statistically that they should have an insignificant impact on this world. Would you agree with that? based on their numbers. Okay, here's some crazy stats. How many Nobel Prizes in the history of Nobel Prizes across all categories, science, math, physics, etc., have been given to Jewish people? You want to take a guess? 30 to 40%. How many Pulitzer Prizes? You guys want to guess? 25 to 30%. 
How many patents, every single patent that has ever been filed in human history, anyone want to guess how many have been from Jewish people? 50%. Why is this interesting? They're statistically insignificant. Yes, they are one of the most impactful people in all of human civilization or culture across the board. Across the board. What is it are they, that they are doing? Now, we can speculate, but because of these statistical differences, it's literally been looked at. People are like, what is it? It's been studied, and it says, there's multiple sources, but one would say it like this. The secret of Jewish people that allows them to be unbelievably prolific as enormous contributors to human progress with unbelievably strong marriages and families as well comes back to the same answer, and that is no one has a higher view of rhythms that form and administer an identity around a story than Jewish people, specifically their view of the table, specifically of how they actually gather communally as a group and administer rhythms and story. And you know what I think that's actually trying to say? No Jewish kid is ever told at age 13, go find yourself. What are your passions? God has a calling on your life. He does, he does, but the Western version of that is pretty bad. Right? So what we do in the West is we, so we say to kids, you're a blank slate, you can do whatever you want and go find yourself. What Jewish kids are told at age 13 through an actual ceremony is what? This is who you are. You are in this story, in this family. This is what God has for you, and this is where he's taking you, and this is where you're pointed. So then they don't waste their adolescence wasting it, right? And so at some level, I think they're just statistically like this because they're just way ahead of us, right? Most, most young adults in the West don't even get to the level of like emotional and intellectual maturity until like 29, that some other people are doing in other cultures at age 13 or age 15 because they're given an identity. They don't need to go find it. Do you see the difference? Do you know that you have that power as a teacher, that you get to actually give the kids in front of you an identity? And it's not one you're making up. It's one we say, this is from the Jesus. This is from Scripture. This is what he has for you. This is what he says for you. This is why he believes in you. And there's a very, very big difference there, and it bolsters us, and I think it calls us into something higher. And so I like to say, what would it look like if we, as apprentices of Jesus, followers of Jesus, understood that our classrooms, our marriages, our homes, our communities, our small groups, were the nerve centers and kingdom movement cells all around the city and all around the world? I believe that's how the world would get turned upside down, by administering identities formed around a story in rhythms in that capacity. So let's get practical. Here's a couple ways that, I, that I've tried to think through this as a dad and as a family, and I think these will be direct parallel for your classroom, that you've got to try to workshop this. You've got to try to figure out how can we do this in a collective way. And honestly, I think you guys actually have a better chance than most families, because I think most families in the West are not anchored by anything. Classrooms are anchored, anchored very well by schedule, right? Meaning like, you can actually inject things in a really beautiful, rhythmic way, kind of more from the start, rather than it just being a little bit more rigid, coming from a family who has no, who's more chaotic. So Here's how we've kind of tried to think about these that I think you should try to think about in your classroom. What could this look like to operate and inject stories and rhythms into your kids' lives in weekly, yearly, and daily ways? Now, the daily ones are pretty easy, and these are just ideas. These are literally me just workshopping with you guys and telling you how I've tried to figure it out in our house, in our home, and some other things that I think could also be very cool in kind of your guys' classroom settings. Now, your classroom or your little entity has to have what I call daily rhythms, which I call micro-meaning. 
You're not trying to win them over. You're not trying to make it the biggest thing or the camp high. Another way to put it is I call the daily rhythms oxygen. Is that how you spell that? Right, cool. Okay. Um, no one takes a breath and says, oh, my goodness, that was the best thing ever. Does that make sense? Right? But if you don't breathe, you die. Right? So at some level, oxygen is survival. And at some level, oxygen, you actually want to be kind of rote. Right? If you have to actively think about breathing, you can't, probably can't do anything else. So it's, and by the way, that kind of pushes up a little bit against our evangelical tradition, right? Sounds a little legalistic. It sounds maybe a little uh, formulaic. But I actually argue not. Do you also, I mean, by the way, 90% of the way we did, a lot of us define legalism, Jesus would have been a legalist. Right? Because he prayed three times a day at a very particular time. He honored a very hardline Sabbath. He lived into Jewish feasts on a very particular day. He didn't go, oh, no, like the Lord loves me. I don't need to do that on that day. I'll just do it a different day. No. Right? Now, does it matter if, where your heart's at in those? Of course. But what would it look like to have these oxygen moments in your classroom? What would it look like? So for us in our marriage, one way I do this is every single day when I wake up, the first thing me and Alyssa, my wife, ever say to each other is, how can I serve you today? And she looks at me and says, how can I serve you today? Now, what that does is five or six days out of the week, we say no, nothing, like I'm good, right? Then maybe one day out of the week, we can think of something. But what it does, it sets a tone. Oxygen or daily rhythms are tone setters for your classroom. What would it look like if, like, what is it? Can there be a question you ask every morning to your classroom? Can there be a little space you create every single day? What could it be? And then with our kids, which this one might be pertinent to you guys as well, we do this thing called the breakfast benediction because I believe in repeatable prayers. I believe in liturgical prayers. I believe that you actually can compound interest on certain types of sayings if you say them over and over and over and over and over again. And by the way, our government believes that. Well, I don't know if you're, do you guys have like a Pledge of Allegiance or something like that? Right? Okay, so in the U.S., we're a little bit more cultish. So yes, we do. You get up in the morning, you know, all these crazy stuff. And so we say like, what is it? It's the... I haven't even done it since I was in school. Pledge of Allegiance, and I, I forget how it goes. But you just repeat this thing, and it's super, I don't know, right? Yeah, bad example. But it's really, it's super drone-like, and everyone gets up, and you have to cross your heart, and you have to do all this stuff. And at some level, that's what it is. And I think governments, actually, by the way, really believe in this. They really believe that ritual, that's another word, ritual or liturgy can deeply form you. It can deeply form you. Do you believe that? So a fun one that we kind of do in our family is what we call the breakfast benediction. I took it from my pastor friend, Bobby Schuler. If you guys know him, he's a pastor in California, an author and a speaker and a writer. Um, but we'll go ahead and do it. It's, it's a little repeat after me, so go ahead and put your hands up like this. Everyone put your hands up like this. My, I have toddlers, so they like to like explode their hands, like, right? And they go like that, and we say, we do this as an act of receiving from God every single morning. And so just repeat after me. I'm not what I do. I'm not what I have. I'm not what other people say about me. I'm the beloved of God. You guys are really excited. It's who I am. Oh, okay. <laughs> no one can take it from me. I don't have to worry. I don't have to hurry. I can trust my friend Jesus and share his love with the world. Amen. And that's it. So 30 seconds every single day. But here's the thing. And then what we do is, and by the way, Jewish people do this very, very, very well. They embody that truth, right? They don't say that prayer. But when they do prayers, do you know some of the, the older traditions they do after they do certain prayers and Torahic memorization? What do they do? They'll give you a little spoonful of honey. Why? Because what does the psalm say? The law of the Lord is sweet. 
It's a blessing. It's good. And so that was a little too messy for us, so we do chocolate chips. So right after we do that, or we, have, we do like little white M&Ms actually on our table, and every time after we recite that, I give a little M&M in my kid's mouth, and I say, the law of the Lord and, the, and Jesus is sweet. Now, do you think at some level when we do those some days that their mind's just blown and they think it's like the best thing ever? No. Usually right after, they start biting each other, hitting each other, kicking each other. <laughs> like, come on, let's be realistic, Right? But that's not what liturgical formation is meant to do. It's not supposed to change your life in one day. It's supposed to change your life in 50 years. That's a difference. That's a difference. Are you, you really try to tell me when my kids are in their 20s, 20 years from now, and they go to the store for some reason, and maybe they have a wayward season with the Lord, and maybe they're not walking with the Lord, and they go to the convenience store, and they get a pack of M&Ms, you believe, and you try to tell me they're not going to think of that prayer? I guarantee you they will. Why? Because we've embodied it. We've embodied it. We put flesh on it. We need to get better at that in the West. That's where truth is meant to live. That's where it's meant to live. And so that's one of them. Another one we do at night is a thankfulness uh, list at dinner. So every single day at dinner, I'm supposed to be writing these down, by the way. Um, I'll go thankful list. Do you know there's only a couple places in Scripture where God says, this is my will for your life? Because a lot of us, that's the big Western question, right? What school should I go to? Who should I date? What should I do? What job should I take? What blah, 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 right? I think the scripture says, have a relationship with the Lord and then choose. That's kind of what I think scripture says, right? I think there's a little bit broader fence of choice when you're already living at the feet of Jesus. But there are some very specific verses. And you know what one of them is? The will of the Lord is what? For you to be thankful. I don't think that's a coincidence that that's one of the only ones. Why? Because I think that's at the heart of the Christian life at the heart of a holy life. You cannot be entitled, you probably can't be living in sin, and you can't be making some poor choices if you are thankful to your creator for the oxygen even in your lungs. What would it look like to maybe do that? End the day with thankfulness or something like that in the classroom. Whatever it could be, there's a bunch of different ways, but you think through that. Another one uh, is those, and then another one. So weekly, I would say we do this a couple different ways. One really big way we do this is what we call the family meal. Now, I don't mean this like in the daily, let's capitalize it more as like, you know, a big one. And the way that we do this is this is our traditional Sabbath. Like we stick to a pretty uh, traditional Sabbath where every 24 hours, one day a week, I turn my phone completely off because I think in the West, that's actually Sabbath. Right? You are not what your eyeballs are looking at on that little rectangular device. That is not your identity. That's not who you are right? Again, we are what we worship. And if we look at this little glowing devices that's always on, we believe we're little glowing devices that are always on. So I turn that off for 24 hours once a week, right? And someone's like, you know, and like, and so I can't, you can't, I can't be reached. So if someone, and someone's like, well, what about if there's an emergency? Then there's an emergency. I don't know, right? Like, I don't know what he's supposed to do. Like, what did people do like 10, 20 years ago before the iPhone? They just like survived or figured it out, right? And you probably can too, but so many of us, we make the, the 1% chance of thing that won't happen the reason why we won't do it for 99% of the time, right? Not a good move. Never really good for our formation to kind of do it based on that. So that's one. But what we do is the, we kick this off. One day a week, we basically have a party, right? It's not just a day of rest. It's not this methodical, legalistic day of where we can't do anything or blah, blah, blah. No, no. We set aside an entire day in our family to do what gives us life. What would it look like to actually celebrate God's goodness and worship him in a set-apart way, 24 hours, one day a week? And we've tried to experiment with that and live into that question, and we will continue to live into that question for the rest of our life. And it's amazing, and it's life-giving. And what it does is it seems to me like we fall in God's cadence. Like, oh yeah, this is how it's supposed to be. 
this is how it's supposed to be. And it's not legalistic, it's not, all, it's not formulaic, it's no, no, we live in what gives us life. I heard, I think it was Abraham Heschel, a famous Jewish rabbi, who said, you know, if you work with your mind, Sabbath with your hands, and if you work with your hands, Sabbath with your mind, right? So meaning like if you're a hard, you know, if like manual labor, then, you know, give your hands some rest and do something that fills up your mind. And if you're all, you know, thinker and all that, like I am, uh, and like, you know, more like computer work, then, you know, Sabbath with your hands. So like go out and garden, go out, get outside, go do something like that. Um, and we're created for that, that cadence and for that richness and for that depth. So what would it look like in your classroom? Not that you give your classroom a Sabbath, but what would it be like? Here's another way to put it. I do believe the week is supposed to have a peak moment. The week should have a high moment. Does that make sense? Now, what would you say is your normal high moment? I think that's a good question to ask. Is During the week, what do you look forward to the most? And can you actually craft or curate one yourself? Because a lot of what we look forward to the most is not something that we're in charge of. What would it look like if you, like you're in charge of a classroom or a school or a principal or a, a group of kids? Like what would it look like if you actually craft a peak moment once a week to celebrate God's goodness, to bring his truth into the classroom, to live in that way? And so for us, it's, it's a day of rest. And we kick it off with a really big family meal. So we eat the best food, we get out the best wine or bottled water, depending on denomination, all that type of stuff, right? Um, <laughs> and we celebrate and it's good and it's awesome. And we invite Alyssa's parents over. They live near us because we want to live in a really big story. And I think one way we do that is by living multi-generationally. That's another thing we've lost. So they come over on our Sabbath and their, their rule, this, we do have a fun rule where every time they come over on Sabbath dinner, they have to bring a prop, right? Bring some prop to tell a story. So like uh, from your past, because I want our kids to know everything about you. I want them to be connected to their story and their generational legacy. So, you know, her mom will bring over her cheerleading patch from, like, when she was in high school 40 years ago. Or her, you know, the dad, my, her, uh, Alyssa's dad worked, was a Coke driver forever, so he brought a, Coca, a can of Coke once and can talk about that. And there's so many different things, but I think they, they, their basic job is just come over and tell a story to connect it to a bigger way. What if it's something like that? Some type of storytelling type of moment. Props, some type of thing for that. Or some type of cadence where you just do something differently so it's marked. It's marked. Another one that we do, which I don't think is, is date night, which is really important, but I was trying to think of an equivalent for this in, like, school settings, so, like, <laughs> but try, stay with me, stay with me, because I think when I was thinking about this, right, I think date night in a marriage is about what? Having a place of really, really solid connection, so that you can kind of then go about, like for us, me and my wife really love date night, because then it enables us to feel connected while we go back into the busyness of life. Does that make sense? And just like we can go back throughout the week without feeling disconnected because we connected. So what would it look like more, I would, say, I would say you guys are more in like the coach analogy, like a coach with your players. What would it look like if one day is set apart during the week for more of like a higher level connection? Do you create any space for vulnerability in your classroom one day a week? Do you create any type of space where kids can ask maybe special questions they can ask that day that they can't ask any other day of the week? Kind of like, like create this culture of like a fun question asking day or nothing's off limits or something like that? I don't know what it is. But, well, but I think that's at the heart of the same thing. Like, that can be another one. And then they would look forward to that day, and they would keep you connected. It would give an opportunity for kids to speak and to live in that. And so this is a really fun one, too. But I don't know what this would look like, but one thing that we just started doing in our, in our home as well is sibling one-on-ones. One thing that's really interesting in a lot of families is that the marriage might have date nights, but I feel like the siblings are never actively pushed into relationship. We just think it's going to happen. Yeah, how's that go? <laughs> right? And so we literally schedule our kids of like, no, you guys got to go get a little drink or a pop and go over in this corner for an hour and just talk and hang out. Our kids are toddlers, so it's more like just go play, right? Older, hopefully it'll be they'll have deep level conversations. And we'll rotate the kids because we have more than two kids. What would it look, I don't know, is there a possibility over a course of a year for you to do something like that in your classroom? 
where everyone gets split up with maybe one type of question or one type of primer or one type of thing, because you want to build deep relational connections. And I'm going to talk about this more in my strand session, but actually, like, we are, the worst part about our culture since the Industrial Revolution is we went from a collection of teams in families, in classrooms, in society, and even in work, to now nothing more than a collection of individuals. The individual is the most important thing. And to me, that's antithetical to the scripture. I think we are a little bit more team-minded in the scripture, and so we want to call us back to this. I think one way to do that is to actively foster and push people in to team-like scenarios. Because teams can do things individuals can't. Teams can go on a mission that individuals can't. Genesis, by the way, was given to a, the Genesis mandate was given to a team, not one person. Missions are given to teams, and they can do what individuals can't as well. Now, let's go to the yearly. Now, this is a fun one. I think this one's probably the easiest one to relate to um, from the classroom. But the easiest one that we've kind of honored that I think would be fun that Christian schools to do, can do is the biblical holidays, right? So I don't know how you guys stand on that or where is all that one. I don't think they're mandated. I don't think we have to. There's freedom in Christ. But to me, they're really, really good ideas. If I could pick between, like, we all have holidays, right? Right? And we have Christmas and Easter, and Christmas is obviously right now. Apparently I found out. Okay. Um, but it's like, to me, why do we fight? I just think this is fascinating. Like, a lot of evangelical Christians get a little, little like this with biblical holidays. Isn't that Old Testament? Right? Well, yeah, but, like, that's our Bible too. Right? And then two, like, they get a little standoffish, but I've never heard anyone, like, they don't have to be convinced to celebrate Christmas. Right? Like, this one's, like, just default right? Why would we not just celebrate this one that's kind of like a pseudo-blend between Christianity and consumerism, <laughs> pretty much? Right? Like a man-invented holiday or one that literally came from God's mind? To me, that just sounds like a good idea. I don't think you have to do it. It just sounds like a really good idea. These ones seem a little bit more rich. They seem a little bit more meaningful. They seem a little bit more powerful. I think they actually connect us to a deeper, longer story. They're rhythmic. They're beautiful. And we started leaning into that. The Feast of Tabernacles is a really fun one that we do as a family, and our kids absolutely love it and eat it up. What would it look like if your classroom was like a little Feast of Booths? Wouldn't that be epic? Let the kids decorate it, honor that week. It's how you start off the year in the fall, right? Uh, I think it's in September, or it's in October this next year. Um, what would it look like, though? Because to me, I think what's really cool about the Old, Test the, the Old Testament feasts is not only are they rich and beautiful and meaningful, meaningful in and of themselves— they are optional, but they're rich and beautiful and meaningful. But then you add Jesus to the fulfillment of those? That's incredible, right? That Jesus is our what? Our dwelling place. That Jesus sojourns with us in the desert. That Jesus is going to cover us while we walk home. That Jesus is going to provide with us this entire journey called life. And then what it does is it anchors you. Because again, here's the thing. We are liturgical creatures. We just usually are doing the ones we're not aware we're doing in the Western default model. And it usually behooves us or goes better for us if we live in the ones that actually can inject us with more meaning and story and rhythm like we see in Scripture. God didn't command Christmas. He didn't command Thanksgiving. You guys don't do Thanksgiving, do you? Okay. Um, but there are holidays that come, came straight from his mind. And I think it would at least... You know, we should at least entertain the thought. They're fun, they're beautiful, and they're fulfilled in Jesus, and they're really, really powerful. Another one that's kind of fun that I think this would be really cool in a classroom set setting is what we call a summit. So once a year, 
our whole family gets away, and we basically have like an all-hands-on-deck, like what are the goals that year? What do we want to accomplish that year? What's the word going to, we kind of seek a, a word for uh, the year from the Lord on our, on, on our behalf for our family. Um, we kind of look at the kids. How are they doing? What do we need to kind of assess, right? We let them, I would say one of the most powerful things is our oldest now is five, and she's now at the age where she speaks into it. Hey, what do you want to do this year? Hey, what do you think the Lord's doing in you? What do you think the Lord's doing in our family? Right? I think at some level, we don't give children enough ownership. We don't give them enough ownership over mission. What would it look like if you actually gave ownership over the mission of the kids in your classroom? What would it look like if you have one day at the beginning of the year and then one day at the end of the year that kind of lets them speak into it? That kind of lets them set some goals, right? Because there's this, when there's collective ownership, can we not, can we know, right, that you just try a lot harder. You lean into it a lot more. Because you feel like you actually are a part of it. You actually are a part of it. What would it look like if you have some type of summit pointing your classroom towards a direction, letting the kids speak into goals, letting the kids speak into things? I know there's curriculum, all those things, and you can't fudge and move all this much, but what would it look like if you're at least listening to their hearts because then you can kind of keep tapping on those all throughout the year? Now, I can go on and on and on, but just for time's sake, I'm just going to do a couple more things. Um... Now, the first thing is, again, I want to I harp on this. This last thing I want to encourage you guys with is, here's what I'm trying to say. Our world is, like, we are liturgical creatures. We are living in a liturgical world. Why not pick ones that are actually pointed towards Jesus? Does that make sense? Here, here, here's a good example. Apple is one of the most powerful liturgical vehicles in the world. Do you realize, like, like no matter how you slice it, Really big people that have a really big impact almost always have some type of liturgical processes, some type of ritualistic processes, some type of story, some type of rhythm. Apple knows that they can be a really, really big successful company if they actually get you to buy in to daily, weekly, yearly rhythms. Right? The first one's super easy. What's the first thing that almost all of us do when we first wake up? You can be honest. You look at your phone. Right? Apple knows that if they can get you in that rhythm, you'll start believing a particular type of story. You'll start living as a particular type of image bearer. You'll start believing a particular type of identity. They want you slaves to that daily rhythm. Weekly similar, right? They know, right, that if they can actually get you in a weekly rhythmic cadence of operating on their phone, then you'll stay on it more. And so to me, the easiest way I see that is that they want it to be a device for everything, the work week and the weekend. Here's the productivity apps. Here's the have fun apps, right? Here's the things to work on. And now here's the things for social interaction, social media, fun, leisure, right? They know that they can get you in this rhythmic type cadence. Or yearly is the obvious. What's the big yearly event, especially in the States? What is it? When a new iPhone comes out, right? I think it's died down a little, but a couple years ago, like this is a religious event. You think I'm joking? Have you ever seen one of Steve Jobs' keynotes before he died? It was a religious event. Fervor, worship, adoration. They're all there. People doing immense sacrifice for what? A very, and sacrificing financially for what? A product, a thing. Especially a couple years ago when the new iPhone came out, what do people usually do? I don't know if they did it here, but they did it everywhere in the States. They camp out. Like, I'm going to wait multi-days out in the cold, freezing rain to get 
a seven or four or five inch device that glows. Do we realize how weird that is? Do we realize how cultish and religious that is? I find it so fascinating that some of us won't even spend $10 on intentionally pursuing Jesus, right? Or just like even leaning into some type of event or moment collectively, community, but we'll spend thousands on a phone and sacrifice days of our life for it. And by the way, camping outside as a sacrifice for something, that reminds me of something. I think there's an event called what? The Feast of Booths that's identical. It's the same, it's literally the same event. You camp outside and you worship someone or something. I find it so fascinating that, again, we just take this one by default, but this one we think is kind of weird or legalistic. Right? So clearly in our consumeristic culture, we have our own liturgies. We have our own rituals. We have our own rhythms. We just don't see it or understand it, and it's the water we're swimming in. And so one thing I would say is here, and then I'll end, I'll, I'll, I'll end on one last thing. Rhythms and stories are about, this word we're going through, practice. Practice. They're about repeating a behavior and getting better incrementally one step at a time. I don't know about you, but I'm the personality that I get excited about something, I try it, if it's not a 10 out of 10, then it sucks and I never want to do it again. Does anyone else have that personality? Right? But to me, following Jesus is the exact opposite of that. It's actually going to be, it is going to stink from the beginning and that's just how it's going to be. And then you incrementally get better and better, and better, right? Take like Sabbath as a good metaphor, again, example as well, right? Like some people I know will kind of say, oh, maybe I should work on a day of rest. Maybe I should live in these rhythms. Maybe I should bring this to the classroom. And then we kind of get really excited and really geared up about it, and then we do it, and it's just like horrendous, right? Like I would say the first time we started kind of trying to lean into the practice of Sabbath, because it's a practice, probably about four years ago as a family, it was horrendous. The kids are crying. Everyone's like yelling. This little thing I wanted to do didn't go well at all. And then it's just like, this is so restful, right? <laughs> no. But here's the thing. The object is not for it to be perfect. The object is to be in process, forming yourself over a long period of time. That's what it's about. It's about a stature of the heart. And again, we do this really well with holidays, right? Because so with Sabbath, when that happens, we go, oh, just cancel it. Let's not do it anymore. Have you ever heard anyone do that with Christmas? Right? Like you show up to a Christmas party, your uncle's drunk, and it's just terrible, and they fight, and there's drama, and it's just, it's just horrendous, right? You're like, oh, this is family, this is terrible, right? No one goes, oh yeah, I got an idea, let's cancel Christmas. No, you just say, that was terrible, let's try again next year, right? You don't cancel Christmas, you just realize, no, 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 we can grow, we can get better, and we can actually change some of the things here. And so that's just one encouragement I would leave you with, is practices, and that's what we're talking about this whole couple days, they're not going to be perfect, and they probably won't even be that awesome when you lean into them in the beginning, but that's not what practices are. Practices are about repeatable micro-behaviors that'll change you over the long period of time. Do you believe that? Because that's spiritual formation. That's what it's like to actually follow Jesus. And I'll end with one story. The last story. Um, the last night before Jesus died, I think he illustrates how he actually cares about what I've been talking about in a way that we just don't always recognize in the scriptures, even though it's hidden in plain sight. The last night before Jesus died, 
the last night. He's been walking with these disciples for three years, some even more probably in relationship. He's been unloading all of his teaching. We can even imagine what's even he was told that was outside of our Gospels, right? Of how much he taught them, how much he discipled them, how much he injected into them, knowing they needed to carry a lot of weight because they were the first kind of generation of taking this on and passing it on. There's a lot of pressure on them. And Jesus, in my opinion, probably felt that there was a lot of that. He needed to get all of it into them so they can kind of start well. They can be sent, sent off well. So he's got one night left. If you feel like you have this group of people that's going to take the baton after this night, what do you think you would do on that last night you have with them? If it was me, I'd probably get out the whiteboard and we'd stay up till like 5 a.m. just giving them all, remember this, remember this. Hey, Peter, remember when I said this? Don't forget. Don't forget, do that, right? We would just pack the truth in, right? Would we not? They're kind of like the cram session before like the finals at university. Just like you got to remember it all, remember it all, remember it all. What's the last thing the night before Jesus died? What do you do? What do you do? It's something we actually celebrate as a sacrament now. He ate a meal with them. Have you ever thought how quite ordinary that is that on the last night before Jesus died to explain the biggest event in human history coming the next day? He didn't get out the whiteboard and say, here's propitiation, here's this, here's sanctification, this is going to happen, it's called atonement, Peter, Paul, you guys, can you pronounce that, right? No, he didn't do that. He said, let's eat. Let's have a meal together. Let's sit at a table where we're equalized, facing each other. And then what's crazy about that meal? What did he then say about that meal? What did he do at that meal? He then told what? A story. It was a future story and also a past story because he obviously invokes Passover. And he says, oh, no, by the way, tomorrow, this is going to happen. This is my body. This is my blood. So he sits at the table and then he tells a story. And then what's the last thing he does after he tells the story? He commands them and says, and every time you do this, remember me. That sounds an awful lot like the word rhythm. A table and a story wrapped around a rhythm. That is how we get saturated in the identity that Jesus has for us. Do we believe that? And if he's our rabbi, if he's the one we're following, if he's the one that shows us the way, Jesus himself, might we be teachers who actually believe in that model, if he does too, and pass it on? What would it look like to teach the way Jesus teaches? Let me pray for you guys. Jesus, um, I'm just so grateful for this room. I'm grateful for every single kid actually represented in this room, thinking about how every single body in this room represents a classroom or a whole school as a principal or a whole district or so many different kind of variations of just influence, impact, authority, and responsibility. And I'm just grateful to think of so many lives and the implications of the lives being impacted by every single person in this room. So Lord, I pray that we would be people that would lean into reimagining that practice, understanding that we do have to swim upstream a little bit in the Western model because it's always not lined up with how you teach, what we see in scriptures, the cadence you have for us, and the way that truth is actually meant to get deep down into our bones. So Lord, I pray we would be people of rhythm, We'd be people of story, but we'd be people saturated in the identity that you give us. Thank you that you give us a name. Thank you, thank you that you give us an identity. And Lord, I just pray for every classroom and person and school and child represented in this room, Lord, that you would bless them, that you would encourage them, and that you would give all of them, through the teachers in this room, new names.
and identities, and that they, the teachers, are actually conduits of speaking those names over the kid, giving them stories, giving them an identity that they've found in you. Lord, we love you. It's your name we pray. Amen.